Hey, Michelle, how's it going? Pretty good. How's it going? It's going good. Good. It's been Michelle, a while. It's been three years ago since Nikki Swango and the Stussy Brothers. We left, uh, I remember seeing, didn't, uh, what's his name, leave town and we thought he was getting away or we wondered if he was getting caught or getting away at the end. I remember thinking at the time, I'm wondering if Fargo would ever be back, but I kind of had a feeling that it was a, it was good, it was a good final feeling of an ending, like it would have been a good point to just leave it alone forever at that point. Well, you don't think this is going to like connect him, do you? Uh, I don't know. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying at that point in time, it seemed like that was a good sense of finality for the show, for the series. And even Noel Hawley said that he was out of ideas and he had to leave it and he went off and did Legion and some other stuff, but he's mustered up some pretty good story ideas in those three long years. Yeah, I I, I agree, but I also thought so after season one, season two all, as well. It was all wrapped up really beautifully and... Of course, I wanted the story to go on, but I usually do in an anthology. That's not uncommon for me. But um, yeah, I'm, I I couldn't imagine what else they could do. And when I heard about this storyline, it seemed not as good to me. I didn't see how they could pull this storyline off as far as everything that they're doing. And so I did not have really high hopes for this, but if this season goes on like it started, I'm just really kind of mesmerized with it. It was a lot. We watched a lot, um, you know, with commercials and everything. It was three hours, and um, I could have watched more. Well, I think Noah Hawley has a really good kinship with the Coens. And I really liked, you asked me what I thought and what I liked about it. I liked the religious themes that the Coens always insert. I liked the struggle with meanings about life and death. Why are people killing each other? You know, why is this bloodthirsty nurse, an angel of death nurse, what's she up to? What's she <laughs> doing? And humans just clawing their way to the top through these crime syndicates and there's capers and adventures and you know, murderous traits and stuff. Why, you know, what's the meaning of them getting through their lives and why are they doing what they do to gain advantage over each other? I think the Coens, somehow, I don't know how tightly the Coens are related to this season four of Fargo, but Noah Hawley has tapped right into the same vein of interest that got me interested in all that stuff to start with in the very beginning with Fargo and the Cohen movies and all that stuff. I really like Noah Hawley's writing in this episode. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. They definitely delve into parts of the psyche that are horrifying and things that make you wonder what's going on in a person's mind in in these. And and they even the things like swapping the kids and stuff. And I don't know I, I have had absolutely no time to look up the stuff that I would have liked to have looked up on the background of this, unfortunately. But I would have liked to have know it, known if that's historically accurate. Do you know you didn't, that? You didn't do that with your daughters? <laughs> I think Julie is a wild card. I don't, I don't see how she fits in. <laughs> no, she's completely mine. So, 
Uh, no, I don't know the historical. I didn't. This was so hard to keep track of everybody and just catalog all their plots and capers and names and roles that I didn't tap into history of like what families yeah. traded kins between each other. Yeah, I, I have to say that I was worried because starting, okay, a series, when you're podcasting a series, and and you start it, it's a lot of work to learn all the people's names and really learn them and learn who they are. And this, they said that this was the biggest cast they've ever done on Fargo. And I believe that. And they really kind of threw a lot in at the beginning. But I know for me personally, I can get lost in um, just like trying to memorize the character names and the things that don't matter as much as the nuances of what's going on, I think, in the episode. So I tried not to do that this time. I hope it doesn't show too much that I don't know, you know, everything. And I know that I'm going to have some questions. With the second watch, um, I caught a whole lot more because it, it's a lot. There's a lot going on. Yeah, the second watch made a lot of things a lot more clear for me. So let's just get our name straight, Michelle. I'm Mike. You're Michelle. This is West Coast Project. This is Fargo TV on our feed on West Coast Project. We do some other podcasts. This is uh, the whole uh, COVID epidemic and stuff. This is one that kind of popped up surprisingly. I'm kind of glad they had it almost finished and they were able to finish it during the flu stuff. So we're able to jump in with our podcast. Yeah, this I, was supposed to start, I think, in March. And then I, they had to postpone. I think they had two episodes left to film or something. I will say I'm frustrated by the technology. We use old school Skype and call recorder. And I've got a few other podcasts going now with um, um, Spotify. And I, if I had my way, I'd switch this over to Spotify. In fact, if anything fails on this recording of this particular episode, I'm going to just dump it all and we'll just start over with Spotify because it's so much better, so okay. much easier, so much easier to submit the feeds to everyone, and we're doing this old school. I use I use an old MacBook Pro just to get the feeds up to the right places and edit, and you don't do any of that with Spotify. I don't even, I mean, I you know, it's been so long since I've done the production end of one that I don't even know what you're talking it's about. It's actually honestly. Anchor. Anchor is a company owned by Spotify that is a tool to make podcasts. Oh, okay. But yeah. I have one I have one in my new van life adventure called Darlin' Alleys. I have one called Fantasy 15 for my daily fantasy sports. I have one for Sprinter Fab for the technical parts of the, the vehicles for van lives and stuff. So those are just all on Anchor now. It's so much more efficient and easy. But Michelle, we got a lot to talk about for this. So, um, how about the meaning of the title? Did you come up with uh, any thoughts on that? Um, welcome to the alternate economy. Yeah. I did not. No, did you? Yeah, I think it means that the immigrants to America didn't have access to the regular economy of things. Um, you know, there. I don't know if they used the acronym in this episode yet or this series about the, you know. Um, Nina, no Irish need apply, and you could fit in Italians, no Italians need apply. So the people that came here from other countries looking for jobs had no way to make a good living, so they turned to crime. And I think that's the implication here for the alternate economies. The, they struggled through whatever they could and whatever, whatever they had to to make money, and some of them turned to crime. 
Okay. So we see four different types of immigrant groups, the Jews, the Irish, the Italians, and the blacks, Broad. make their way through economies and so- social settings, and, you know, they all become Americans, um, one, eventually one way or the other. Um, but it's very interesting how they, I just love this, religions merged with social, political, merging of ethnicity and all this stuff that, you know, how they all made their way and um, under the under the problems that they had with each of their ethnic um, challenges that they had, that they made a living, even if some of it was quite illegal. But I think that's the alternate economy. It's a way to make a, you know, make money outside of the regular economy. Okay. Yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense, especially what we see coming up in the second episode. It makes sense. Also, the quick turnaround time, right? Because when we start with this, we start in 1950, and then they kind of go back, and they only start in, uh, well, 1900, but 1900 and then, you know, to 1920. But that's not a really long time to be doing these major, um, I don't know, are they... Okay, first question. Are they like crime families? Is that what this even is? Is that fair to say or is it something else? No, I think they're all school teachers, Michelle. No, I'm just saying. Is that fa- I mean, they're crime families. Yeah, it's right? a crime story. It's a story of immigrants coming to America and the alternate economy of how criminals within those immigrant groups made their way and fought and lost and gained and gained advantage, lost advantage got replaced, got wiped out, excelled, whatever. And it was just who, who was a crime on top story. at a particular time. So between 1900 and when we when we actually start the episode uh, in 1920, there is four different ethnic groups. Yeah. So let's that, go through it. So there's lots okay. of setup. We'll see it all pay off, but let's go through some of the characters. We We've been in Kansas City before. You know, some people are saying we're we maybe see are seeing Mike Milligan's ancestry or his, his prequel story. You know that he may be Satchel. Okay. Um, but we'll go through that. But it's kind of a history of yeah. crime: Jewish first, then Irish, then Italians, then blacks. And each new group that came in kind of replaced the one that they shake hands with, or you know, do their spit shake or blood shake with. The new group always comes in and kind of takes over from the previous group. Um, I also think that, which is interesting, again, with the Coens, Michelle, is the good versus evil. Because I think Ethel Rita versus the nurse is a good versus evil little battle going on here. It could definitely be that, yeah. I think the nurse is Anton Chigurh, or um, who was the guy in the the semi-truck with the bad teeth? Can't think of his name, but yeah, that guy. Um, but good versus evil, you know, two super intelligent, multiple, multiple language speaking beings ready to set battle against one another. Very interesting how they have this set up to this, this goofy nurse who's like supernatural in many ways, but she's got the goofy Fargo, Minnesotan accent. What which, makes, yeah, and I, and I think that's really neat how they do tie that in. What makes her feel supernatural to you at this point? By the way, it's Vargo. That's who it is. Yeah. 
So we'll we'll tea, get to yeah. that, though, what makes her supernatural. But there are uh, many, many things that make her supernatural. Okay. Um, just one, one obvious one is administering death in such a pleasant way for, like, seemingly a meaningless... You know, what's her, unless she's a total psychopath, what's her goal in sending people off on their, you know, final journey? <laughs> it's, it's, she's, it's evil. It's just, it's, it's just something more than her being human. It's very cold, at least. I don't know. I'm, I'm not convinced of anything other than that at this point, but I mean, I'm open to it. So the so the gangs okay so 1920s we see the Moskowitz syndicate the Jewish gang comes across the Milligan concern the Irish people and then the later on we'll see the Fada family the Italians and then the Cannons right. the black family right and the, the cool storytelling tool is we have Ethel Rita doing this all in a report kind of a cool storytelling report this mechanism to help us keep track of the the history of immigrants coming to America. Right. Um, all, of course, punched in with goofy coincidences, um, which is just brilliantly comic in this black... This is a black comedy. You know, it's it's basically a comedy. <laughs> um, but, like, goofy coincidences, like the angel of death nurse living right across the street from the mortuary, where oh, the girl, right. the smart high school girl telling the story, she lives right across the street from the nurse... Um, and then Ethel Rita's aunt and her lesbian lover break out of a prison. In a birthy, Shawshanky way, they crawl out of a pipe somewhere, and they're all of a sudden on the scene. That's, Wait, are they are they a couple? They're a lesbian couple. They're a lesbian I didn't even partner. get that. Yeah, and that's that's Ethel Rita's aunt, the one. The yeah, one. I knew that. Yeah, but I didn't get that they were a couple. I thought they just broke out together. So that's okay. I didn't know that. We got a slew of goofy names of people. Oh my god! And a slew of goofy quotes. You know, and and pretty smart quotes. I mean, maybe the smart quotes are are more impressive to me than the funny goofy quotes. But I forget who says these, but I type some of them in. You know why America loves a crime story? Because America is a crime story. <laughs> and, and then Delor or um, Ethel Rita saying, "I punched Dolores with my eyes." Um, you well, say, because she knew she was going to get in trouble. She was going to get in trouble. Didn't matter. She had quit even pleading her case at that point. Well, that's it all she matter. did is she looked at her funny. I punched some other girl in class with my eyes. No, she had a black eye. Oh. And that's why she was sent to be paddled by this guy who was, you know, the principal. I didn't get that. I thought she just looked at her funny. No, no. Well, this what other is girl it? hit her in the eye and she's the one who got in trouble. Okay. Because she always gets in trouble because she made some comment and I did not top it down but it was something about how you know it was um essentially she was not looked upon favorably because she was black and smart yeah it's better to be it's better to be um disruptive than uppity like as a yeah. black as a black yeah. person and then a couple more were um one guy says what and you say what a lot <laughs> what says what again um, Dr. Senator was my mother's idea. Oh, really? What was her name? Ma'am. Her name was Ma'am. <laughs> that was perfect. And then Chris he, Rock at one point says to the guy, the guy says to him, you know who I am? And he says, yeah, you're the guy who comes any closer. You get punched in the face. 
It's great writing, man. It is great writing. I agree. Well, you've kind of covered pretty much all of it right there. All right, Michelle, we'll see you next week on season two or episode two. (laughs) Almost, you know. I mean, if you just want to jump into it, are you done? Yeah, ready. ready. I'm ready. Okay. Well, we started in 1950, like you said, in Kansas City. We have Ethel Rita, and she's telling a story, and we're flashing back. She immediately goes into how the Hebrews ran the underworld in the 1900s. And then, like you said, in the 1920s, the Irish came. Did you notice when they put up, like, their... Because they would, like, pause on a person, that like the leader or the other people, and put up what they had been charged with beside it? One was yeah. charged with buggery. Yeah. I don't even know what that is. I noticed a lot more than that because I've I, I listened to a couple of other podcasts about Fargo. One is okay. Um, uh, Fargo. God, I'm gonna forget the name of these. Man, I should write write them down. Fargo. It has Fargo both in both names. I'll think of it and tell you later. But the um, those guys said all the guys in those descriptions were the same height, exactly five feet ten inches. Really? Fargo talks Fargo. I think is their podcast. It's two guys that live in Fargo. But all the criminals are the exact same height. I think implying that they're all just the same. They're all just people coming to America, trying to make their way and trying to figure out what to do. And they're all just exactly 5 feet 10 inches tall. Which is pretty funny. That is funny. I didn't notice that. That's that's interesting. I just noticed the funny things that they were like charged with. It was weird stuff uh, for us part of it was you know and then as as the the new people like when the hebrew were there running it and then the irish came up they had like this i don't even know what would you call it it was like a ceremony right where they get together in a room and one side stomps their feet in unison and then the other side stomps their feet in unison and then they like trade children and that that was very interesting to me but, yeah, that that other podcast, by the way, Fargo Talks Fargo. Okay. You should, should listen to it. It's really good. I yeah. love I love listening to those guys. Hopefully they listen to ours sometimes, but Fargo Talks Fargo. They okay. catch a lot of stuff like that, everyone being the same height. Yeah, but yeah is that an effective way of keeping the peace? Your youngest son is with your enemy, and your son or their son is with you? I mean, is it like a way of showing trust? Is it a way of, I mean, I don't know, because we see how it turns out. It's usually not very good. Or I, I think it's a more usually, more of anything or less of anything. It's a political ceremony because you're right. It doesn't really hold any sway, really. No, and but they do like a spit shake. I mean, what does that, what kind of sway does that hold? These grown men, we're not talking about fourth graders, right? And they're spit shaking. Just the oddest of things. Well, what's signing a trade pact mean, really? It's a it's a symbol. True. It's a symbol of faith. True. But then we go into um, like 1928, and the young Irish boy let let the Hebrew people. Am I saying it wrong? Into the speakeasy to kill. No, the young Irish boy let the Irish people into the speakeasy and it was a speakeasy, right? It was like a little backroom 
place where they're drinking and playing cards and that kind of stuff. That's what I would have thought it was. Yeah, anyway. or gambling. It doesn't really matter. It's an under. It's a. It's an illegal activity in some, you know, illicit place. That yeah, he Trojan horses his way in and lets his old family yeah. in. But the kids in this play this really, to me, a big role. It's a really big role because they're the ones that are upsetting the apple cart, so to speak. They're the ones who are infiltrating and finding out stuff and. Um, and, you know, maybe actually letting, you know, opening doors to let people in to murder the other people. And then they're encouraged by their own fathers. The Irish father encouraged his son to kill the Hebrew boy. Yeah, his I mean, right counterpart there. in the trade. Yeah. Yeah, and that was him- his first trade of two. That That Irish kid was traded twice. And this is his right. first of those two trades. Right. But, I mean, it was really bad. The kid didn't want to do that. And do you know his name? I don't remember his name. Well, his name ultimately is Rabbi Milligan. I don't remember his real first name, but he becomes Rabbi Milligan because his first trade is from Irish to Hebrew. So they call him Rabbi Milligan. We see him a lot later on because he comes up. Obviously, he gets traded again in an important way, and then he gets he's an adult in an important way. Well, the story continues with Ethel Rita. It's 1934, and this is where the Italians come for the spit shake and the uh, unison ritual stomp, and the sons exchanged again. But this time, they he in, in place of the Irish leader trading his youngest son, which is the custom, he trades this like you said the same son again, correct? Yeah. And so that was like. And, and you could tell that it was a surprise to the middle son or to this next to youngest son, but not to the youngest son. The youngest son acted like he knew or so. I don't know. So that was really weird. I think the youngest son just acted relieved like, oh, thank God it's not me. Because okay. he's, yeah. not, he's not old enough to know the political comings and goings of all. He's just glad he's able to stay and his older right. brother has to go. Right, absolutely, but I felt like, I, I don't know, I just kind of got the feeling that his dad had told him it's not going to be you, and he certainly didn't tell the other, and he may not have, that was just the feeling I got, and he certainly didn't tell the other kid that he had to go again, because he no, was No, he didn't tell anybody anything, he just did it at the time. But this time, the kid, the Irish kid, in place of letting them in the road... He, he ends up being for the um, Italians. Right. So he that fakes, was a, he comes to the door and says, it's going to be a double cross, I need to talk to my dad. So they, the Irish crack the door open and the Italians rush in and kill everybody. Right. That, that was, um, I didn't even catch that the first time. I didn't catch that it was that kid who did it. I had to go back and make sure I was kind of, and I know that's, not very smart to not catch that the first time. It's just so many people, but um, but well, yeah, it's very that... Shakespearean. Then he murders his father, kind of cold-bloodedly. He murders his father, and his father puts a curse on him before he murders him. Right, right. Interspersed with poor, poor old Ethel Rita, or poor young Ethel Rita, has a hard time sitting down after her chalkboard math theorems because she's been spanked so hard with that stupid plank. 
She can't oh, even sit down sideways. I know. She really catches it from like all sides. She's she's this really smart smart young girl and she and and everything that she has to deal with you know she has to ask her white father if she can walk through the front door of their funeral parlor home because she's not even allowed to walk through her front door if they're having a white funeral well michelle if you're a fan of good i'm glad ethel rita's on the good side i'm glad she's on our side if you're a good if you're on the good side because she's a good player to have on the team and I agree. So smart. So smart. But this is where we meet um, Orietta Mayflower. Because Ethel Rita goes in. Her father allows her to go in. And almost everybody's gone. But Ethel Rita's there. Now, I didn't really get it. But Ethel Rita, I think, because I thought, okay, she's lost somebody close to her. Which you would think if she's at this funeral. And she's carrying on and crying and everything. But I don't think she did. I think she goes to the funerals of the people she kills. I think that's what it was. She does do that, but I think she's measuring up her foe. And like the good versus evil theme that I'm laying on top of this, like with my heavy-handed guessing. Right. I think the nurse is evil and Ethel Reed is good. And, she, and evil is measuring up her foe, her good foe. She literally, like... She's, she asks her about her emotions and her spiritual, t- like, takes inventory of her spiritual, you know, where where are you? And I'm surprised Baptist fervor hasn't made a Negro like you tumble to the floor after being affected by the Holy Spirit. And she doesn't she take her glove off and literally, like, feel Inspects her hand? Inspects her hand, yes. You know, like, like tact, tactilely t- touches her to, f- to feel her out, literally, you know? Yes. Yes, she's horrible. And even the father is, like, stunned by the way she's treating her. And Ethel Rita, to her credit, I mean, she's polite, but she doesn't she doesn't suffer it very well. She knows. She, anyway, that's, it's awful. Okay, then, then it's time for another spit shake ceremony. But this time we get Chris Rock. I did not know how he was going to do this. Did you? I couldn't picture it. He's great. He's older. He looks older. He's as cool as frickin' as he ever was as a stand-up comedian. He's smart as he ever was. He's just perfect. He's he's older Chris Rock. When, you know, I'll take it, man. He's really good in this role. I tell you, when they said Chris Rock, I thought... I really thought they had jumped the shark because Chris Rock is so, I guess, typecast into his role just as a comedian. And I know we, that they they do that. They use comedians, which is has worked very well in their favor, but not anybody as um, famous as Chris Rock. And it just kind of blew me away that it was. And I was into this this episode at this point and when when Chris Rock came up I did not even know it was him for for just just a little bit because of the character and then I was like okay this is definitely gonna work and then as it went on and on it was just better and better and it was really cool too because now Chris Rock's shaking things up right he comes alone everybody else has like come up as a group it's almost like the 
armies, you know, these proper armies, you know, coming face to face. That's not what he did. He comes alone and then he whistles and everybody comes from all around to join him. And then Chris also doesn't want to spit shake. He'd rather do the blood shake like men. And the Italian boss here, he kind of mocks him. And I'm going to tell you, that was a lot of blood too. That was a lot of blood. And we, we've seen blood in every episode, just in both episodes so far. I mean, and a lot of it, but specifically, I don't know. Well, what do you think you're watching, Little House on the Prairie, Michelle? I do not think I'm watching them. Okay, so uh, Chris Rock plays this uh, Loy character, and he does not want to trade his kid. He does not want to do it. And the kid doesn't want to be traded. But he gives him this fighting advice, and he sends him away. And then we flash to his son in the car being really disagreeable. So it's like he probably didn't even tell until he was in the car. And I cannot imagine a child like yelling no to their parents in their face like that. But then back then, but then you think about what they're asking. And they said at some point later on that it's just doing the family duty to do this. And it's just like, that's incredible to me that they're putting this on these young, young children. Um, the Italian dad's given advice too, but his advice is learn everything, sleep with one eye open, be as Daniel in the lion's den and all that. And, uh, Loy is just telling his son, fight him if you have to. Yeah. There's a couple things interspersed with this Italian black transaction. I, okay. One is the strategy that Loy interacts with, with Dr. Senator. He discusses strategy how um, the 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 doctor senator guy, which is a freaking hilarious name. I think it's is it senator doctor or doctor senator? Doctor senator. He says the Italians have the upper hand. Well, he says let's go take them out, and Loy Cannon says, well, the Italians have the upper hand, so right now we can't do that. We have to kind of pretend and wait for an advantage and kind of feel them out and find their soft spot. I love this strategic exposition that they have to like think about this. They can't just act. So he rejects that that advice from this wise old doctor senator that we just gotta jump on them and take over. That no, we gotta wait. We gotta find their soft spot and then figure out how to best react to that. We also see though. I mean, some of the some of the um, older characters in the Italian group are good about waiting. And, and but but I mean they're not all. We're yeah, seeing... we all, well this is where we see Rabbi Milligan, who's the Italian now. <laughs> he's he's now what, six or eight years older, so instead of ten he's sixteen or seventeen or eighteen. The tri the twice traded Irish kid. Right. Now he's a younger now he's older but he's still a young man, but he's an older he's an essentially an adult now in the gang. And um, I thought he was the one that gave the advice. Was that the was it Donatello or the, or Rabbi who said, "Learn everything, sleep with one eye open." I thought that was Rabbi. Maybe it was Donatello, the dad, the old dad. 
But Donatello understands it. Or, I'm sorry, Rabbi understands it because he was twice traded and had to kill his counterpart, then had to kill his father. He, you know, he knows the feeling. He knows what it feels like to be the young son getting traded twice. It happened to him. Yeah. Yeah, and he he um he he takes interest in the kid. In the so, kids. Okay, so here's what happened. So the de- maybe it is Donatello. What's that scratching? It's Jack behind me scratching. Get him what the hell out of there. I'm... Jack, welcome to the podcast. Do you have anything to add to the, <laughs> to the conversation? He's anxious. I know, he's anxious. But so uh, maybe the dad does say, learn everything, sleep with one eye open, sleep as Daniel in the lion's den. The kid, then the kid says, I don't want to go. But then Rabbi, the, the twice-traded Irish kid, walks over and says, be who you need to be. Don't forget who you are. That's the strategy. So that's that's where, right. you know, he's right. someone who definitely knows this game because it happened to him twice. But that was really cool, like, like seeing the different... Um, the different advice that was given. And you can tell that Loy is like this, I'm sorry, I don't know what to do about him, but you can tell that Loy is like this great um, father, right? I mean, he really loves this kid. He does not want to do this. And I don't know that we're seeing that as much. Well, Loy even loves the Italian kid. He dresses him up. We'll learn all this later. But he dresses him up real nice, takes care of him. He's playing with the kids. He's like part of the family. And Satchel's like shuffled off to the outer, you know, edges of the family. Yeah, he he takes the job very seriously as far as keeping that kid. And I think that's pretty cool. Okay, but then we go to Ethel Reed and she's taking the bus home. And this is where we find that her parents are essentially, okay, the black underworld, the black crime family, whatever we're calling it. But are they actually doing anything illegal here? They're loaning money. I mean, they're loan sharks. But they're telling. But but they're telling. They're that's not illegal though. And is it? They're yeah. They're it telling is that the they're, they're loaning doing. money. They're criminals loaning money to people, Michelle. Like I'll loan you money. I'll loan you a hundred bucks. You owe me a hundred and fifty bucks tomorrow. That's usury. That's not legal. But they actually went into a bank and told people that. We'll see that in a little while. And because it's like to the black community. I mean, would the white banks even loan money to the black community? No, that's why they do it. That's it, okay. like if you have a gambling problem and you need a thousand bucks, you borrow a thousand bucks, and then tomorrow you owe fifteen hundred bucks, or a week later. Okay. You know, it's usury. It's it's abusive loaning of money, and and all Loy is trying to do is like, hmm, this is working kind of in a small scale with our black community. Let's expand it with this credit card idea, and just like. That's what it, credit card companies do. He's actually brilliant. That was brilliant as far as um, money-making endeavor goes. But anyway, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. So Ethel Rita takes the bus home, and she finds that her family is needing to... She doesn't know what's going on, but they're meeting with the black community, the black loan sharks, I guess is what you call them, to, but she didn't know who they are. They're just meeting and her mom's really weird about it and sends her out of the room and she doesn't know anything else. She just knows that there's a meeting and she's not invited to it. 
And then we see the intro. Now, what did you think about the intro with this? I didn't really notice the intro, but one important thing about Rita in this is she reminds us that, and I don't remember from the show if she learns this or if she thinks this, but she reminds us that all history is individual, that we all make history. No matter what we think we're doing, even if we think it doesn't matter, we as individuals are making history today, which is really profound if you think about it, that you may think what you do what you do every day is meaningless but you're making history this is what history is made of by individual people and individual things that they do regardless of how little they think they are i think that was really profound i didn't even catch that but that that is that is profound it's very it's a wonderful life esque i did not catch the credits although you're right that was 22 minutes in and the credits showed up it was 22 minutes in, and the intro, they did, like, the word Fargo is cut out. It's like a cut out, far, the word Fargo, into, like, you're looking through the words, looking at St. Louis, I think. I'm pretty sure it was St. Louis in the background. It's pretty quick, but it's bleak, and it's just kind of gray, and it just looks ominous. This is not going to be, I don't think, a happy... I don't, I don't know that we're going to get as much happiness as we did in, particularly like in season one, as much cheerfulness. I hope, I kind of hope I'm wrong. I like that part of it, but I guess we'll see. I never assigned cheerfulness to anything, Faro. The show, the movie. What was her name? The one, uh, I, I can't remember her name, but the one that had Billy Bob Thornton in it and um, that girl. And she was very the police officer, the female police officer. Molly Salverson. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Something about her and her character was just so upbeat. But I guess you could say the same thing about um, the nurse, Nurse May Mayflower. I don't know. But but this was great. I really like that intro, and I just you know it's it low key but very effective. I thought so. And then we come back and we get that signature. This is a true story. The events depicted took place in Kansas City, Missouri in 1950. At the request of survivors, the names have been changed. And out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. Which is really cool because that that started with the Fargo movie. And they have kept that through every series, every season that they've done this. So... I was glad that they continued And they that. admit that it's a total blatant lie, that it's just their stamp, it's their motto. Yes, yes, yes. And I wonder how many people believe it is. Because if you see that on there, you know, I don't know. You'd, you'd have to look it up to know it wasn't. So, okay, then we go to Loy and Donatello, the two crime boss bosses that's fair right to say they're crime bosses at this point yeah they're okay. heads of the family okay and they they're discussing the boys that were exchanged and they're also loy wants to run the slaughterhouse and i guess that just means i don't i don't know what that means because what it's mostly in the black neighborhood black population probably mostly black workers it's the slaughterhouse it's the black you know should be owned should be owned by the the negro 
crime syndicate. So what does the... Donatello agrees. He says, yeah, you're probably right. He doesn't agree. Well... He doesn't agree. He says no. Right? That's what I heard. Well, later on, Lois says that he... Unless he's lying, I can't He's lying. Lloyd lied. Yeah, for sure. Donatello was like, no, it's set up. You know, that's kind of not going to happen. And he really wouldn't hear of it at that point. And and I think Lloyd said something like he wanted to talk about it, you know, or whatever. And I don't know that he said they could never talk about it. But no, it was definitely kind of shot down is what I heard. And also this was where we, we get the exchange where Donatello's son goes up to the to the to the group of uh of the black men standing there and he says he's looking for Samuel and they just like make him look like a a a boob right i mean he he's just he's awful he's just standing there he tries to be mocking and he's terrible right the guy says his name is Lemuel and he said it's in the bible and they have to like ask him to leave them alone. He starts to like pull, I assume, a gun or something, and one of his guys comes up and stops him. And yeah, that's Justo, right? That's the um, that's the head guy next to Donatello. Yeah, it's his son, his yeah, oldest Justo. son. Yes, is it Jew? I thought it was Josto or something like or that. Or Josto, J O S T O, Yeah. And so we go back to Loy and he's telling Donatello that they're both in the gutter because Donatello is kind of behaving like he tells Donatello that he is not he doesn't work for him. And he said, You're kind of acting like I work for you and he's like, you know, we're both in the gutter. Whether so, we like it or not, yeah. Right. Okay, so we're back in the car and then we have this scene where Donatello's being counseled by Josto, his son, that they should end this already, that they don't respect, Josto said that the blacks don't respect them. And Donatello says, I think it's the other way around. So they discuss that that, uh, the sons are going to come visit their mothers. These mothers agree into this, sir. Strong. These are strong women who could agree to something like that. And I know men had more, a lot more power than women back then. And I know that they probably didn't have a choice, but that, that's, that would be a tough one. Well, Justo has a bit of delusions of grandeur. He's like, they're, they're just animals. The colors, they're just animals. We're the freaking Roman empire. And, you know, that's just like and his dad is trying to tell him it's just business you know we gotta get we gotta kind of get our way through this and get along um and then we also learn in this scene that Gaetano Justo's Justo's younger brother is coming over and then they we later on hear about the comparison of how these two are two different types of lions and one's a stronger lion than the other so it is it is really a power play or a power, oh, a sure. hint of a power play at this point. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something, and I hope this doesn't ruin this for everybody. But um, Josto, in a lot of his facial expressions and stuff like that, I see um, Steve Carell. 
and it just really messes me up. It messes me. He looks just like the same facial expressions, like like some character Steve Carell would play. So, I think they, not that this guy isn't doing a great job, but if they wanted another, he also looks like Ronan Calkin a lot from Succession. He looks like one of the sons in Succession. Oh, really? Yeah, but he acts and he acts kind of like him too. Well, outside the car, there's some black people. There's a lot going on, right? There's a lot going on outside these cars. They've just pulled away. They haven't even made it anywhere yet. There's a lot going on outside the cars, and they're stopped at a crosswalk. There's like a somebody letting people cross the street, holding the signs up. There's kids playing. Uh, I thought it was cap guns, but evidently it was some kind of pellet gun, right? Both. That they're playing with. One kid had cap pistols. You could see the caps on them. Yeah. And the other kid had a like a BB gun or a pellet gun, probably a BB gun. Why why would the the kid with the cap gun want to play with a kid with a pellet well, gun? Well, that's a pretty good question, but you, you know you got the toy you got. You know you're not gonna not play because. <laughs> yes, but I mean, talk about an unfair advantage. But I went to anyway, a, so... I went to a. BB gun fight with a cap gun. <laughs> I think I think that may be our new saying, right? But um, there's a lot going on. So so there are these black people standing like waiting to cross the road, and the the guards in the car, the people who are guarding Donatello, the Don that group, the Italian group, are concerned that they're. I assume that they're coming to you know kill them, and. And so they're like really on edge and everything. Now, in the meanwhile, we think Donatello is having a heart attack. He's having to like fuss at his son Josto so much because Josto is just um, wanting to run things and his dad's not having it. But it turns out that Donatello just had gas and you think, oh, okay. And this kind of is like this relief moment. And just as soon as you feel relief in true Cohen style Donatello is hit in the neck and he's hit in an artery from the pellet gun that one of we assume that one of the kids is yeah, playing we don't have to pure assume that's what happened. Right. He dies three different ways. Like he's gonna die, he's gonna be assassinated in the crosswalk. No, he's gonna die of a heart attack. No, he's gonna get hit in the artery by a pellet. What a <laughs> what a fluke. And to the happen. show when you watch that the first time it seems like that scene's like four minutes long, but when you watch it again, it's literally like forty seconds long. It's way shorter than it seems. Yeah, yeah. The first time it was like, what all's going on? And I'm trying to trying to follow because everything, it's very chaotic and everything's going on at one time. You're right. That scene does, does prompt a couple thoughts about like the Beatles Abbey Road, though, crossing the crosswalk with the kids lined up kind of, I don't know if they were hand in hand, but they were literally like almost in stride going across the crosswalk. Right. Or, right. or in... in um, Pulp Fiction, when Marcellus walks across the road and he see he turns into the windshield and sees um, Bruce Willis in the car. <laughs> You're right. You know, it's kind of like that. It's like drama. You don't know what's going to happen. And it seems it's funny because it's like all that drama was like non-existent. Really, it was just a stupid accident. Yeah, yeah. After all that, you know, he's not going to have a heart attack because his son is driving him crazy, and then. But it turns out that he's going to just this fluke thing. So so they go to a hospital, and they're not allowed in this hospital. 
they're not allowed in it and they go in and the nurse won't even get a doctor i mean he's like he's spurting blood from an arterial wound in his neck like presumably like a juggler you know i don't know maybe not but anyway and they won't even see him they say take him to the other hospital that just that blows my mind that's just unbelievable so Josto is saying that he's not going to forget this and um so they have to get his dad back in the car and drive him somewhere else yeah they're rebuked by a mr harvard or dr harvard of all names was that his name yeah that's interesting i didn't catch that Write that down. We don't want to. All he's trying to do is protect the blood supply, Michelle. He doesn't need that Italian blood mixing in with that nice, clean white blood. That is just. That's literally. I mean, he will come up to it, but that's what he says to somebody later. Yeah, yeah. That's just flabbergasting. Anyway. Okay, so then we go to where Loy is giving this business p- proposal to Mr. Wink something. And, okay, why does this guy take take this meeting? He just wants them? to call, it's Winkle, somebody Winkle, he just wants to call him Wink. Can I call yeah. him Wink? <laughs> <laughs> he's a but, dope too, he's so funny. He's like a typical Cone Brothers dope. He's a, he's a Bob Odenkirk as sheriff, you know, he's a dope. He has a brilliant idea right in front of him, and he can't see it. It's staring him in the face. No, and even the stuff he says is just incredible. And he's not even really paying that much attention to him, right? He gets some kind of paperwork through that tube system, that vacuum tube system, and he goes and gets that and signs his name. This is the middle of this, and he does that. It's just, but it's it's just, he has the... Okay, credit cards are not a thing, so we know that. I didn't know when credit cards became. I wouldn't have imagined they were around in, what is this, 38 or whatever, but... No, it's 50. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. So credit cards were not around in 1950, I don't guess, then. Do you think the pneumatic tube delivery system was supposed to look futuristic or ancient? Because I would guess at that time, in 1950, that had to be pretty futuristic. That's what I would think. Because yeah. I remember going to banks and drive up to the drive-up window and you're, when you're a couple lanes over and the, you'd shoot that tube through there. In like, you know, 1992. <laughs> right. years later. Right. But it's this, it's this great thing. He is pitching to them that, you know, so it's Friday night. You're taking your best girl. I mean, he does this great sales pitch, right? This is Lloyd, Chris Rock. He's telling this whole thing. She wants, you promised her a lobster, but you only have $2. What do you do? And, of course, Dr. Senator's there, and this is where we get that little um, conversation about his name that you already went into. It's just great. And he's playing... You know, he and Loy are ha- have this little act together, and he's like, "You use this." And did you see the size of that credit card he pulled out? It was like a half an inch, quarter inch thick, or something. No, it wasn't that thick, but it was a steel plate. It's probably how credit cards were when they first came out, like a like a like a tin plate, like heavy metal plate. 
But we're making great advances in plastics. It's looking very promising. Which so is said. very reminiscent of like it's a wonderful life and all that. You know, it, it's true. You know, and 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 Senator Doctor is he is a PhD in economics, so he is credentialed enough to be able to make this pitch and back up. You know, Chris Rock's wonderful sales pitch. Like, hey man, you got well and you got an opportunity yeah. to make. Not only, like, people don't want to really be rich. That's too much trouble. They just want to seem rich. So you can let them seem rich. They can buy the dinner, the lobster dinner, at t- and 10% interest and pay you back later. Look at that. You get credit. You get extra, you know, you get money on top of money. Right. Right. And he's, you know, he's like, it's an open line of credit. It can be paid back weekly, monthly. And he needs the, because, you know, what's this guy's name? Wink what? Winkle. Wink- Winkle something anyway he says he wants um, he says why do you need me and he says because he needs him so he can get into the white businesses to right. expand what he's doing well Winkle in in his infinite wisdom says people aren't going to spend money they don't have and right. charging interest to people who are down on their luck just isn't what banking is so i'm gonna decline and you have a sucker and have a cracker jack day have a cracker jack day that's funny that he hands them a sucker and he's kind of the sucker for not jumping on this great idea yeah and they were even saying you know he's like um lloyd couldn't believe it and he's like I'm giving you a million dollar idea. I mean, he had to do nothing except extend credit to these people that he knew would pay it back, you know. Yeah, there's still something I'm trying to figure out, Michelle, because as they're leaving, somebody else in the Cannon gang asks them how it went, and Loy says um, spectacularly or perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he was being totally sarcastic or if he was kind of happy that this bank didn't get, didn't catch the drift of how good of an idea this was. I don't think he was happy. I think that was just sarcasm. That's Probably. how I took that. So. Okay, so then we go and they're all standing around the the Italian gang is standing around the Donatello's hospital bed. They got the pellet out, but he's lost a lot of blood. But they're gonna have to guard the room because they're still afraid. Okay, okay, okay. This might this is a big question. What does What's going on that Josto thinks he keeps saying he didn't hear a bang and then he keeps doing like the little shot movements with his fingers and stuff like that. And I actually rewound it to see if I could hear a bang when he gets hit in the neck. And you can, you can hear a bang. Uh, I mean, it's a pellet gun bang or whatever, but you can hear it. So what, what does he mean by that? Did well, you get anything of it? This is kind of an important interaction in this episode I think well you don't hear a bang you hear a BB gun pop, pop. right yeah like a like the air pressure of a BB gun I think Josto wanted his father to be taken out and maybe he even contracted with somebody to have him taken out he's like wow he got taken out but I didn't even hear the bang so oh. I thought about that but he also, when he crosses paths with this nurse Mayflower, goes into a very interesting conversation with her in which I believe he's inviting her to murder his father. Oh, I absolutely believe that's what he was saying to her. So one way or another, I think he's either saying, well, that didn't work. The assassin, I didn't even hear the bang. 
and it looks like the gunshot went through. But let's just make sure when he talks to the nurse, you know, make sure you take care of it. Take care of my father. Will you? So he's that, in a lot of pain. Will you take care of him? Oh it's yeah, a deal with absolutely. The devil. So that whole thing where the black guys were standing outside the car actually probably was going to be a hit then. I don't think, think we know that. Okay. And maybe and maybe it is just innocently that Josto is surprised like wow, I didn't even hear a bang and my dad got shot. But I think he's No, think he seems confused, not surprised. He seems like he didn't get what he expected. Well, you would be confused if your dad got shot and you didn't hear a, the bang of a gun. Yeah, but he didn't get shot with a gun. He got shot with this pellet gun and it was very, I mean, you could hear the kids up there playing the whole time. That's part of what made it so suspenseful was was the noise of these kids with these play guns just like... Yeah, but if that really happened in real life, you, as the son Josto, wouldn't think, oh, the kid's pellet gun went off and it accidentally got through and it hit my dad in a very unlucky spot. And He thinks, he probably thinks he got shot. Okay. that's Well, I didn't even think of that. But I was curious as to what you thought about that or if you caught that. But again, we meet Orietta Mayflower. Now, we don't he know says Because, listen, he says there was no bang when they shot him. They didn't shoot him. Those kids didn't shoot him. That was a total accident. They were playing a game, and the BB found its way miraculously to his artery. Right. Nobody shot him. You know, it's a total accident. It's a total coincidence, a perk of fate. But it'd be really interesting because it'll have to come out if that's true, you'd think. Because they don't leave things untied. Nah, I think they're done with this. He, he okay. has the nurse take care of him. Well, we meet again, Orietta Mayflower. We don't know yet that she is anything other than just painfully inappropriate. But he asked her for no reason. She's delivering food, and he asked her for narcotics. She declines until he offers to share, and they do, and then they go do some together. And then she's like putting drops in his eyes and all that kind of stuff. He's talking to her and says there was no bang. This where he said there was no bang. And um, then he goes into, I don't like to see my father in a lot of pain. Will you take care of him? And she says she will attend him faithfully until the end. Yeah, that's pretty clear to me. Mm-hmm. I thought so, too. Okay, then we see Ethel Reed at the dinner table, and she's asking her parents about those men that were in the house earlier. Wait a minute, and, Michelle. You're skipping a whole thing here. Okay. We hear this. Hold on. Can you hear that? Yeah, I can hear it. We've heard this old hippie poem before in another season of Fargo. Mm-hmm. Just listen a little bit to it. Okay. To live in an old shack by the sea. And breathe the sweet salt air. To live with the dawn and the dust. The new moon and the full moon. 
It's a poem by a guy named Eden uh, Abez. Now I gotta figure out how to stop it. Hold on a second. Rain. The surf calm the beach. Eden Abez was this hippie dude who wrote that in like the fifties. Which episode? I mean, which season? I don't know. I tried to look it up and I couldn't find it in time, but it was definitely a part of another Fargo episode in another season. Because I do definitely remember in something we podcast, but I just don't know exactly what. Yeah. I, and let, let me tell you something else, too. The the poet, this poetry, I'm almost sing-songy, you know, musical poetry that they were doing, and all of the music that they play it is so fitting they could not find, I mean I don't see how anything could be could be a better fit than what they're doing okay so you're with Ethel Rita at the dinner table now asking about the who is in our home she asked this like three different times yeah they're not going to tell her now we can tell her we, we learned some stuff here that her father's definitely more permissive than her mother and her mother expects to just be obeyed and she does not want her involved in anything like that which you know I mean you wouldn't right you wouldn't want your child to have to worry about anything like that so they're not going to tell her they're not or the mom specifically I think she could have talked her dad into just about anything but the mom's not going to tell her and then we do this cool transition I had forgotten how they do this but there was three like slashed lines across the screen with three different things going on. So you can see all that. That is just, I love that. I love that. And I have missed how they do that. Yeah, but before that, I mean, that is cool, that comic book page type style of editing. Mm -hmm. But there's some strategy to this dinner conversation. Because remember, Loy needs to get into the white community. And the, the funeral parlor has Mama takes care of the black families and Papa takes care of the white families. This is the perfect venue for Lloyd to introduce his credit card scheme into the white community. He's got a black and a white merge right here. It's a, it's a intersection that he can make a lot of headway with. So for him to solve their financial problems by loaning them money or helping them with whatever problems that apparently they're out of formaldehyde or some crazy licensing or fee paying with the community or the office of regulations or whatever they're in some trouble and well the they needed to do some repairs is what he said because there was like an inspection whatever whatever trouble they're in loy can help them and loy needs their mesh of black and white community which they have with this funeral parlor that's okay. I, that's the that's why that's the answer to answer to Ethel Rita's question why is why are you talking to this guy at our table I think that's why but you're right oh. mom rules the roost and she's you know dad is the storytelling pacifier and mom is the hard-nosed rule maker absolutely but now I didn't get that I just got that it's going to show how tough the the loan shark part of this operation is. Well, I don't they, know that. I, I'm just right. guessing, but that seems like a perfect entree. That this is what Lloyd needs. He gets into the white community via the black and white funeral parlor. 
Well, I mean, that's definitely one way to look at it. I just, I didn't get that, but that's, could certainly be. Okay, then we go to Lloyd, and he's going into his house, and he greets his wife and the other people. It's, I think it was his mom or his wife's mom or something. And she asks about her son. She asks about Satchel. And Lloyd tells her he's skinny. And he says they'll get their son back when he sees their throat. So he's he's got plans to do this. But you're right. We see um, the Italian son integrated into their home he's just another kid in the home and being treated as such and the mommy makes comment that he ate a whole loaf of bread for lunch yeah he's just a kid growing up hungry and happy and needs you know a million calories to right right i think seeing your throat means the scale missing on the dragon's belly you know the, the, the 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 that you can get in the weak the weak link in the chain exactly like a like a sword fighter would have covering on his throat but when you see the throat that's the opening right it's a it's a and, and it's funny really that he said that i didn't think about it until you just said it because donatello just got hit in the throat but it's it's such a vulnerable area so i mean you know if you break anything in your throat you can't breathe if you break something in from the front and you can't you know move if you break something from the back and if it's hit from the side, I mean, it's just it's a very vulnerable area so yeah and then we see the horrible scene where orietta mayflower goes into donatello's room where he's snoring loudly now um what did you say his name was is it rabbi milligan is sitting in there with him i don't know if that's rabbi milligan it's, it's definitely the Irish guy. Well, it's an Irish gangster protecting Donatello. But why would no, an Irish no, 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 gang- no? I, I misspoke. It's a soldier of Donatello. I'm why do you think? Sure. Why do you know. think it's Rabbi Milligan? I just think it's him. I don't know. I oh, thought it I, was him sitting there. I misspoke. I, I, I just think he's an Italian soldier okay. of unknown identity. Yeah, he called him something to. I don't remember. So you might be right, but for some reason I thought it was him in there with him. But I don't know. I don't know. I definitely need to go back and see. It seems to be somebody that Nurse Mayflower can keep at bay uh, with her mysterious, evil, you know, religiously powerful ways. (laughs) She can do whatever she wants and that guy stays asleep. Well, yeah, he was turning up a flask too before that so. still michelle come on she's they're portraying her as some powerful being that that guy's not going to wake up while i'm doing what i need to do even though she gets caught later i think that i think she's projected to be this manipulator of people of, you know, like you stay asleep until i say you wake up almost that's that's in there. I mean, I like I said, I haven't read anything about this or heard anything else, so I've not even that never even entered my mind. But so so she's asking. Well, but something that is interesting is how fluently she speaks like all the different languages and stuff like that. That was well, isn't that of, more evidence that she's powerful? Yeah, bizarre. She asked him if he hurts, and um, he doesn't know who you know where he's at or what who she is or. 
where he is, where anything, what's going on, and then she starts to put something in his IV to kill him. And well, she asks him more profoundly, does than does it hurt? She says, "Does this earthly realm hurt?" Oh, that's how she speaks with everything, though. I know, she says but that's that more that's more potentially powerful. Aren't you aren't you ready to leave this har- this this hurtful earthly realm? Like I'll solve your problems by taking you out. Yeah, I kind of get the feeling that's what she thinks she's doing with these people. Like a, and she says it right, an angel of mercy or something. Well, that's she, her. Just... That's her stamp on it. That's her sugar coating on it. But she's pretty evil. He didn't want to go. He's calling her a murderess and trying to fight with his last breath to not. Doesn't hurt that bad. Where he wants, he's like, oh yeah, you're right. Take me out. No, he was going to be fine. He lost a little bit of blood that had patched up. He was going to be fine. But, yeah, he's definitely fighting her. But he's lost a lot of blood. He's not that strong. And she's, by the time he realizes what she's done, I mean, it's already hitting his system. She's telling him, there, there. It's, you know, only a little bit longer. And I just made a little note here that it's horrifying. She the is, Lord won't is, want you if you're ornery. Just die peacefully. And, and she's smacking these patients. Did you see that? Like again, she flicked him on the on the nose or something when she said that. And the other, I mean, she's like she'll smack them, smack their hands. It's like awful. And then when he does die, she pulls his ring off. Now what's that? She sucks his ring off, Michelle. Okay. It's okay. like something she's done. I don't know. It's like she's very expert at it. She's too good at this to be comfortable watching it. It's... Like, that's the quickest, slickest way to get a stuck ring off somebody's finger. Like, she knows how to do it. That's a good point. Is is she doing it to sell, or is she doing it for, like, a trophy? Well, we see what it does later. It causes dissent between... Josto and, and Gaetano, who thinks either Josto thinks Gaetano stole it or the other way around. I can't remember. It's it's malicious, you know. It's mayhem causing. And then she starts. She sits down and sings the "Will the Circle Be Unbroken" song. It's just like unbelievable. Okay, then we go to Ethel Rita. She's swinging on her front porch in the dark, and the bus stops and lets Orietta Mayflower out. Um, she's talking to her. And isn't it funny? Isn't it funny? Because she just met Ethel Rita. Orietta Mayflower did just recently, but they literally live like right across the street from one another. Yeah, it's a goofy coincidence that you might smirk at in another movie or show but in Fargo you kind of embrace it like oh well this is interesting yes okay so she's talking to herself as she lets herself in her apartment across the street and did you notice that there was like somebody standing in the middle of the road yeah what is that is that that Shagur thing nobody knows who that guy is Okay. He's a creepy guy. It's at the very end. But there are a couple other things to this getting off the bus and walking across the street that caught my attention. That, okay. Um, she, Ethel Rita tenses up when Mayflower comes off the bus. As if she's in danger or near danger. 
But it's no, it's just a nurse getting off the bus, going home to her apartment. But she tenses up like, wow, something's really ominously bad about to happen. And that's why I'm assigning these ethereal, powerful roles to Ethel Rita and Mayflower. Like, I think good can sense evil, evil can sense good. And they, they, they almost have like a force field of something around them that they feel each other, you know, when they're close to each other. Okay. And she's not comfortable when that nurse gets off the bus. But why why would that bother you if she was just a nurse getting off a bus going home? She's just like, oh, my neighbor. What's the big deal? But it is a big deal. Yeah, I didn't know what... Okay. I took that for face value because she had just met her, like we talked about, and she wasn't... She was really odd, Nurse Mayflower was, with her. So I just took it as she kind of bristled when she saw her again. But maybe not. I mean, you could be right. I don't know. Well, listen to what her dad has to say to her. Or she has to say to her dad. Next scene. This this next part of the scene. Well, yeah, her dad comes out and she asks him, well, okay, what's going to happen to her and the world? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. What kind of question is that on the heels of that tenseness and watching the nurse come off the bus? That's true. What's going to happen to me, Dad, and the world? That's a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty deep question for a high school kid with great grades, you know, sitting on her porch. Yeah, it's supposed to be like late at night too, right? So she's like outside just maybe contemplating life or whatever. But then she goes into the kitchen thing and she asks him about the guys in the kitchen and he breaks and tells her that they're having a little bit of money trouble and but they're not going to lose the house and how horrifying to for a 16-year-old to hear that, you know? Yeah, that would be scary. Then he offers to read his 16-year-old back to sleep and she rolls her eyes but smiles and then then we Pan, you're right. You are right. Because then we immediately pan across the street to Orietta Mayflower's window. So you go from this innocence, this um, goodness to her. And she's standing there and she's looking out, but she's talking. What is she? Who is she talking to? There's what a is lot she of. Saying? Well, that I don't know. There's a lot of like story hints in this little scene that are just so good, so well written, so powerful. Like, first of all, it's exceedingly charming that this 16-year-old girl and possibly potential agent of powerful good of some angelic source (laughs) likes her the idea of her daddy reading her a bedtime story. It's just so sweet to hear this and to see her, like, charmed by it. Yeah, it's and sweet st- on her, and it's really, like, sweet on him. It's this whole, the, it's a sweet relationship. And I the agree. story is The Wizard of Oz, which is kind of a story about, well, first of all, it's interesting that The Wizard of Oz happens in Kansas, which is pretty close to Missouri, Kansas City, Kansas. But the whole idea that the man behind the curtain is just a guy pulling strings, he's not really anything powerful, but he appears to be powerful. There's something there's something interesting about that, even though I can't tell you what it is yet. Right. And then this creepy guy in the street, and then they end it. It's it just it leaves us with a lot of like hints of something more than what we actually see. Right. 
that was it that was it we fade to black with that one and it went off all right michelle well that's it for episode one that's it i'll see you next week like meaning in about 15 minutes for episode two <laughs> yeah they started it off hey this was long this was long it was really good i'm uh, I, I enjoy them doing that. I'm glad they do that. All right, Michelle, that's it for 401. I'll see you later on 402. Okay. And we'll get into that one. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.